Our scripture lesson this evening is from Ezekiel chapter 1. I ask this question from this text. Do you see God's glory? Do you see God's glory? We just sang from our last hymn these words. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. The eye of those who hate God do catch glimpses of God but do not truly see his glory. And not impressed with the brilliance of God. And so we pray that we would answer this question rightly this evening. That we would see the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. And praise Him for it. Be moved by it. Uh, there's a lot of background that we could mention from uh, the minister, about the ministry of Ezekiel. I think simply put, it's enough to say that Ezekiel is called to minister to those who have been exiled from Jerusalem about 600 years before the birth of our Savior. And transported into Babylon, what we would call modern-day Iraq. And so these people are away from Jerusalem where the Lord had placed his name forever. Away from the holy places. Away they may have also felt from the very presence of God. And so the Lord in his kindness and goodness comes to them through Ezekiel, to say, I'm here, and do you see my glory? And so we start with this brief uh, call of Ezekiel, and then immediately go into the vision that Ezekiel sees of the glory of God, so that he himself could be equipped to go to a people who needed to see a holy God. In the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, a gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. 
As for the likeness of the human creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And the rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose wherever the Spirit wanted to go. They went and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels." Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings and there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Amen. I wonder if you have ever tried describing a dream to someone else who you suspect may be interested to hear about your dream. It's a weird experience, isn't it? If you've ever tried explaining a dream or talking someone through a dream, even the most vivid and alarming dream usually sounds like nonsense the moment you try to explain it. I had this recently. I woke up in the morning. I, I felt I had this, this dream that was going to change my life. It was profound. And as the minutes went on, as I woke up, I realized I, I had no idea what it was anymore. Just just gone, just like that. And if I had tried to explain to someone what it was, they would have, eventually their eyes would have glossed over and they would have said, you know, it's all right, you don't have to tell me, it's okay. 
Ezekiel struggles here to tell the vision of God's glory, not because he couldn't keep the details straight, like we struggle to do when we wake up from a dream, but because words failed to capture what he had seen. He's forced throughout the telling of this vision to use the language of analogy. He can't use straightforward descriptions. He says things like it had the likeness of or the appearance of. It's not this thing, but it was like that. It appeared to be something like that. He struggles the way you would struggle if describing, for example, the Niagara Falls to someone who hasn't been there. You might say, well, they're, they're really big. And, and they're loud and there's a lot of water coming down. And as soon as you say those words, you think, I haven't begun to describe the Niagara Falls. Words fall short. And yet, however hard Ezekiel's vision was to describe, it changed him. It changed him. Ezekiel fell on his face before the likeness of the glory of the Lord in humble submission. His response to the vision, I think, provides an important interpretive key. In other words, his response to seeing the glory of the Lord tells us how we ought to respond if we catch a glimpse of the glory of of the Lord. This vision is an overwhelming sensory experience meant to astonish us with a glimpse of God's indescribable majesty. And we need that exposure to God's glory. Only when we experience God's glory will we say with Samuel, speak, Lord. For your servant hears. That was Ezekiel's experience as well. He hears this vision. He, he knows he's being called into the ministry. And he falls down on his face. And then he hears God speak to him. And you can imagine Ezekiel. If he wasn't ready before. To hear God speak to him. He's ready now. Because he has seen. A glimpse of the almighty. And we need that too. And so two things we want to do this evening, I, I think, simply enough. First, we want to experience Ezekiel's vision. Now, we've experienced it a bit because we've heard it read, but we want to, as, as best we can, step into that vision because it's meant for us to experience. If, if it wasn't meant for us to experience, the Bible may easily have said instead, and God revealed himself to Ezekiel and then sent him out to minister to the exiles. But it doesn't do that. It records, it retells the vision so that we can enter into it. So let's try to enter into it. Ezekiel first saw a fiery cloud and four living creatures within the cloud. The swirling cloud was illuminated by fire radiating from its midst. Imagine, 
you step outside this evening and, and you find yourself standing in front of a gigantic, fiery tornado. That's what Ezekiel has here. He's standing in front of a giant fiery tornado. But what caught Ezekiel's attention, if that wasn't enough, were the living creatures moving inside of the gigantic fiery tornado. The appearance of the four living creatures was startling. Their bodies sparkled like burnished bronze, like, he says, the appearance of torches moving to and fro, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. The living creatures had four faces, one face each of a lion on the right, of an ox on the left, of an eagle in the back and of a man in front. Ezekiel, because of the circular arrangement of the creatures and the fact that they've got a face on each of their four sides, Ezekiel could see each of the four faces at once on a different creature. The creatures also had, we're told, the hands of a man. The creature's four wings stretched out and covered their bodies. So you have these, these living creatures, four faces, wings, human hands. But as, as Ezekiel is taking in the creatures, his attention is drawn to the, the wheel that was beside each of the creatures. The wheels, he says, were sparkling like a precious stone and plastered around with eyeballs. Its design, the, the design of the wheels allowed each of them to see and turn in every direction. How do you describe that? What do you do with that kind of a experience? I find it fascinating that, that elsewhere, especially at the end of Ezekiel, as Ezekiel is describing the temple with very definite measurements, so many cubits and, and uh, all of the detail of that temple, Ezekiel is capable of giving detailed measurements. But of the wheel's rims, he could only call them tall and awesome. He doesn't say how tall. He just says they were tall and they were awesome. Sort of like how you might try to describe the uh, Niagara Falls to someone that, who's never seen them. They're, they're tall and they're awesome. But, but you realize that the person you're telling that to doesn't have a, a, a reference point for that tall and that awesome. Each living creature was united to its wheel by a common spirit, so that each creature moved with its wheel. When one was lifted up from the earth, so was the other. The living creatures, we read in verse 14, darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. To get a, a, just a little sense of what Ezekiel's saying, you, you've probably been outside or looked out of a window during a lightning storm, and that lightning is darting to and fro. 
in, in many senses perhaps. The lightning itself moves, but you see one streak of lightning over here, and then it's gone. And then, and then it strikes over here, and you see lightning over there. And it's moving all around you, sometimes in several places at once. This is something like what Ezekiel is experiencing. When the living creatures and the wheels moved, the noise, verse 24 says, was like the sound of many waters. I've been encouraging you to think about the Niagara Falls. Well, this is what he's saying. It's the sound of many waters. Perhaps like the sound of the Niagara Falls dumping three million gallons of water every two seconds. Many waters crashing, cascading down, piling and moving. And so the first part of this vision is of this fiery cloud inside of which are living creatures connected each to a wheel covered with eyes moving back and forth, tall and awesome. And when they moved, the sound of many waters. But it's as if Ezekiel is continuing to look up, taking in this scene. And the second thing he sees as he moves his eyes upward is is an expanse, or as the King James puts it here and elsewhere, a firmament above the creatures. Now, this is hard to picture. I can't really fully imagine what this is. Commentators struggle to describe uh, what this would be if you could paint it or draw it. But this is, this is what I, I believe the text is saying. The word for firmament literally describes metal hammered into expansive plates. So if you have copper, for example, on roofing, or maybe it's uh, flashing around a steeple on a church. That, that's something uh, of a rock hammered f- flat and smooth and, and broad. That's a, a firmament in the idea of Scripture. Moses used that word firmament to describe the broad space that God made to separate this world from everything beyond in Genesis 1 verses 6 through 8. There is this world and then there is a firmament. Symbolically, this expanse is synonymous with heaven and God's sanctuary because it's apart from this world. It's like on a different plane from this world. So, what I imagine is this. Ezekiel saw a, a, a mini-horizon, like awe-inspiring crystal, he says, separating two scenes. So you have the scene below this horizon, the living creatures and the cloud and the fire, and then you have a scene above this horizon. The vision climaxes with what Ezekiel saw above the separation. He says this in verse 26. I saw a likeness. Okay, so what does that mean? I saw a likeness? What is that? What is a likeness? Well, he's not really even sure how to describe this thing. I saw a likeness with a human appearance. 
So, so he's, he's clear in his mind, what I saw was not a human, an ordinary human. But it's, that's, the, that's the only thing I have a category for to help you understand what this thing is, Ezekiel's saying. I saw a likeness with a human appearance, seated above a sparkling blue throne. This is what, what theologians refer to as a theophany. A visible representation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Ezekiel says it, 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 it seemed to me like a man, but I know it wasn't a normal man. More than the rest of the vision, the Christ figure's glory nearly defied description. In other words, if we think that Ezekiel has been wrestling with language up to this point, describing what he saw... Now he, he struggles even, even harder. Let me just read verse 27 again. I want, as, as I read this, as I read this, notice there are five qualifiers in the description that Ezekiel gives of what he sees. In other words, he's being as far from concrete in his description as possible. He has to give five qualifiers. It's like this, but not like this. Five times. Listen again to verse 27. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were, so not really, not literally, not exactly, but I saw as it were, what? Gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around it. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. He, he can't describe this vision literally. His color was amber, like fire, radiating from his figure was something like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So Ezekiel says, I, I know you know what a rainbow looks like, but that's not what I saw. I, I saw something like the appearance of a rainbow. Let me sum up this text in two sentences to help us see what God is doing here. From this fiery figure, exalted on a brilliant throne, resting on a crystal-like expanse, carried by four terrifying living creatures that moved about with eye-covered wheels, Ezekiel heard a voice. And Ezekiel fell on his face. All of the vision, you might say, all of this, this wrestling with language, this stuttering and stammering of the prophet, all of it is meant to set up the fact that this beautiful, terrifying, glorious creature spoke. And so the text is saying to us, God, the God of glory, is speaking are you listening? Are you listening to the God of glory? Now, we won't be able together to study in coming chapters what it is that God says. Be a worthwhile uh, exercise in your personal devotions or family worship, but 
God, in this vision, we know, is confronting Ezekiel with certain truths to prepare him to listen. To prepare him to listen. So I want to move, move to our second point this evening. Not only must we experience God's vision, or, or the vision of God's glory, rather, but we must respond to Ezekiel's vision of God's glory. Clearly, it would be an inappropriate thing for us to do to read about the glory and take it in and say, well, that was interesting, and, and go on our way. What a weird first chapter. What an odd way to begin a book of the Bible. How do we respond to this text, this vision? The vision of God's glory is meant to confront us with truths about God that we must know if we will truly hear him. That's what Ezekiel needed. He needed to be confronted by God so that he would actually hear him. Well, what did he need to be confronted by? What realities did he need to experience? Let me suggest just three by way of application. Number one, Ezekiel needed to know, and we need to know because God records what he experienced, that God is holy. This vision combines images from the holy of holies. Remember, which had angels with, with their wings outstretched. And it combines with that images from the flaming mountain at Sinai. The description is similar. When Israel approached that mountain, there was a thunderstorm surrounding the mountain with lightning flashing. And interestingly, both the Holy of Holies and Mount Sinai, if, if you were to approach them un, in an unauthorized way, you would die. And now God combines these images into this vision for Ezekiel to say to his servant and to us, I am holy. God's holiness is, in fact, dangerous to an unholy people. The fiery cloud beneath Christ's throne suggests God's prerogative to purify and to destroy unrighteousness. I think you would agree there is hardly a more dangerous combination than wind and fire. There's, over the last year, we've read about many accounts or seen many accounts of uh, forest fires uh, in Canada or wherever else they've been. And what, what people in that scene are, are praying for, is hoping for, is, is rain and, and calmness. No wind. No wind. But the cloud is a windstorm of fire. The, the, the idea here is that God is dangerous to unholy people. The wheels remind us of the chariots of the great war machines of Ezekiel's day. The sound that Ezekiel heard in verse 24 was both, he says, like the sound of the Almighty and a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. And it's no mistake that Ezekiel says, I'm not really sure what it is. 
Is it the sound of God or is it the sound of an army? And of course the answer is found in the phrase in scripture that God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. What Ezekiel heard was God speaking as he would like an army. Ezekiel then presents us here with a dangerous God who is at the same time a terrible enemy and a perfect deliverer. Do you know that you can only hope in a dangerous God? If God is safe, if he's easily approachable, if he's just like us, then there's no reason to put your hope in him. There's lots of people just like you with some measure of strength and wisdom and and, uh, wit and intelligence and so on. You need a dangerous God to entrust yourself to. That's why he's a perfect deliverer. And so we we need to catch this. If, If anything, God is saying to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm holy. Understand who you're approaching, who's approaching you. A second thing that we see and need to respond to appropriately from this vision is that God is present. I mentioned that the the context of Ezekiel's ministry is to exiles in Babylon, those who had been taken against their will from Jerusalem and Judea into modern Iraq. And these Babylonian exiles, these Jewish exiles in Babylon were questioning God's presence. In their minds, God was tied to Jerusalem. We too sometimes live as though God is only present in worship. We may think about God as a holy God as we find ourselves in what we sometimes call a sanctuary. And so we feel like we must be on our best behavior in terms of knowing that God is among us here and now. But that's the question the, that's the, question the Israelites had. Is God with us? Is he really with us here this far away from that holy place? We too might wonder, does it matter how I live when God doesn't seem to be present? Well, what God is saying to us is, I am. I am present in Jerusalem. I am present on the plains by the Kabar Canal in Babylon. Ezekiel was assaulted by sights and sounds so magnificent that the vision knocked him over. Took him days to recover from this experience. What was the experience? His experience was meeting with God. God was in his midst. And he knew it. And he fell on his face. And we need to understand, friends, that this vision of Ezekiel is only a faint reflection of the real heavenly throne from which Christ rules our affairs today. The eyes on the wheels and the movement of the throne above the living creatures shows that God is present in intelligent action. In other words, the way that Ezekiel describes the construction and the movement of these living creatures with the wheels next to them and the platform they're carrying above with with the Son of Man seated above that platform, the sense that Ezekiel had was, there's no running from this. The wheels could move in whatever directions they wanted without even turning because of their wheel-in-wheel construction. You can't flee from God. 
You can't escape his presence. You can't imagine God away. You can't distract yourself from the reality of the Almighty. And so understand this is what this means for us. In one sense, God's glory is the stuff of nightmares. The Holy One is here living in the midst of sinners. And so Ezekiel responds like Isaiah responded when he caught a glimpse of God's glory. He says, I'm undone. I've seen God. He's been near to me. And I, along with my people, are sinners. God is among us. And yet he is among us in the person of Jesus Christ, also in tenderness and compassion. Remember, that God, despite all of, its, of, of the terribleness of this vision, God is conveyed in human likeness to show his interest in us and his sympathy toward us. The Christ figure, remember, was shrouded in, a, in something like a rainbow in order to convey his intention of peace toward all those who keep his covenant. So you've got this terrifying image, but Ezekiel says, and, and around the throne there was something like a rainbow. And people of God would, would and will today hear that phrase and say, well then, there's hope. Because the rainbow was a reminder of God's mercy. And his kindness, his, his holding back from the destruction that we and our sins deserve. In Christ, the glorious God, you might say, kneels to meet us. God is with us in glory, in the fullness of his majesty, and in Christ, in his kindness. In his compassion. One more thing before we close that this vision I think tells us in terms of preparing us to hear God's voice is that God must be obeyed. God must be obeyed. In the next chapter, God commands Ezekiel to stand on his feet and speak God's truth to a rebellious people. What do you think Ezekiel does? Do you think he obeys? Of course he obeys. He's just witnessed the majesty of God in this nightmarish scene. Of course he obeys. That was the point. A vision of Almighty God has just chilled his blood. How else could he respond? He again responds similar to that of Isaiah after he received a call. Remember, after startling Isaiah with his glory, God calls him to go and speak for him. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Likewise, when Jesus' glory was unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Bible says that his disciples were greatly afraid. Here is this Jesus this, this, this one that they were so familiar with. But now the glory that was hidden in the incarnation for a moment is 
breaks loose. And the disciples who, who knew that Jesus was also their friend are terrified. But this experience, including its terror, revolutionized their journey of discipleship. They needed to see the glory of Jesus. Peter later wrote of this event in 2 Peter 1 verse 16. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Like Ezekiel, he says. Or John says in John 1 verse 14, we beheld his glory. And in response to what they saw, they dedicated their lives to the service of God. For us too then, discipleship depends on a deep and abiding sense of God's glory. Only a humble and loving response to a clear impression of the terrible strength and majesty of God can make a person fit for his service. So, so to answer the question... Do you see God's glory? The answer is you must see God's glory if you're going to serve the Lord. If you don't see God's glory, you'll leave this place and this description that God has given to us with a yawn and say, well, that was an hour and now I go on my way. Do you see God's glory? How, if we could now tie it in to some of the questions that we're going to be asking in the week to come, how do you respond to the challenges of life? How do you respond to the call of discipleship? Your answer depends on whether or not you are impressed with God and have found him to be a loving friend and father. One day, you too will see God in his glory. You will see Christ's majesty. You will see whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. You will see in, in living color with the naked eye what Ezekiel saw here in a vision. And some people when they see Christ will hate it. They will as Revelation 6 16, 17 says, they will call on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And then they will go to hell. But by faith in Christ, God's majesty becomes our confidence. Because it's a majestic God that we have come to love and serve and find our hope in. It is God's majesty that becomes our motivation for a life of practical holiness and deep happiness. And so, friend, the chapter that we've read is calling us to see God's glory and submit to him and serve him with all your heart and experience in that way the only way to have real and abiding 
happiness. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. As strange and mysterious as it is to us in different parts. We pray, Lord, that we would truly be amazed at what we see in this text. And that we would leave this place in awe of you. In love with you. And prepared to serve you, body and soul. We thank you also for the opportunity to give for the cause of your kingdom. We pray that you would bless the shepherd's way and do much good through this organization. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.